Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Father, as we're coming into your presence now at this point in our service, lingering before that throne, that sovereign throne of the universe, thinking about the one who is Lord of all, governs all, guides and directs all, thanking you for this great privilege of being able to sense your presence as well as be in your presence. Just what we want the richness of all these services on Sunday mornings to encompass. That there's this powerful sense of your presence. And that while we worship you, we come into your presence. When we open up your word, we're not interested in what a pastor's opinions are. We're not interested in necessarily the trends of the hour but we are interested in the way in which the truth of eternity relates to the times in which we live. Always applicational, but always intent in understanding what it is you've said and how it is this relates. And so, Father, there's a richness to this experience now with Bibles wide open, text appearing on the screen, reflections upon what the God of the universe has communicated to us sinful humanity. And we're asking that in a very unique way you meet us at our point of need. So Father, these minutes are significant. So what we're asking once again is that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in the midst of the Cold War when Mr. Stuart Briscoe was traveling to Poland. He has been the long-term senior pastor, now emeritus, at the Elmbrook Church, of course, in, in Brookfield. And he was involved in several weeks of itinerant ministry. Marshall Shelley tells us that one winter day, his sponsors drove him in the dead of the night into the middle of nowhere. You ever been there? Well, Briscoe walked into this dilapidated building. It was just crammed, though, with hundreds of young people. And he viewed this as a unique opportunity and through his interpreter, began to teach on the subject of what it means to be in the faith. In the faith. But here's the rub. Ten minutes into his exposition, the lights went out, and it was pitch black. Now his interpreter urged him to keep on talking, and he did, And unable to see his notes or even to read his Bible, Mr. Briscoe continued. And then after he had spoken in the dark for about 20 minutes or so, the lights suddenly blinked on, and what he saw amazed him. Everyone was on their knees. 
And they remained there for the rest of his message. Well, the next day, Mr. Briscoe commented on this to one man. And the man then said, well, sir, after you left, we stayed on our knees most of the night. Your teaching was new to us. We wanted to make certain we were in the faith. In the faith. And I thought about that when I began to reflect upon what Mr. Briscoe was addressing that morning, that evening. Because this is exactly what the Apostle Paul, in fact, is focused upon in these concluding verses that you and I are embracing this morning when he challenges us, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And so I got to thinking about that and the significance of being in the faith and began to wonder, well, how can we provide evidence that we're in the faith? And as we examine these verses here, as we wrap up 2 Corinthians this morning, what I see are three significant means by which you and I, if we are in the faith, are able to provide evidence of the fact we are in the faith to those who may be on the outside looking in and wondering, am I a spiritual outsider? Or am I a biblical insider? And what does it take to get there? So let's explore three significant evidences, three means by which we are able to evidence that we are in the faith. And the first flows out of verse 5 and verse 6. And we're going to phrase it like this, that we provide evidence of our faith through, number one, the testing that we administer. You see it there, verses 5 and 6. Now notice how he begins. Examine yourselves. Notice that it doesn't read, examine each other. Check out each other. See whether or not each other is uh, living up to your expectations of what a Christian ought to be. That's not what it says. Oh, we might have expectations of one another, Ideas of what one another ought to be doing, how we ought to be living. But you see, what he does for you and does for me is that he forces us at this point to get personal. Have you ever gotten personal with God? Now, it's not the natural tendency to examine self. But what he's telling you and telling me is that this has to be proactive and it's got to be aggressive and so it's not examine each other. It begins with examine yourselves. And I need a purpose statement. So do you, so do I. We need to be able to understand, well, what's the purpose of all this? Is it just to create some kind of spiritual autopsy? No. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He was standing at the very edge of uh, a worship service. His wife had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ in our living room weeks before, and he was checking things out. He'd seen the transformation in her life, 
And there was a settled peace that seemed to just simply grip her soul. And he longed for it as well. Afterwards, his wife wanted to make a point to introduce me to him and him to me. And he was pretty notorious in the region. Another setting, another place, another time. And I asked him how he was doing. He said, I feel like I'm an outsider looking in. And I said to him, Dave, wouldn't you rather be an insider looking out? Think about it. Years later, he would have come to Saving Faith and be the one that oversaw our building program out east. But non-Christians have a tendency of saying, I don't know quite where I fit at this point in this whole matter of the Christian experience. I feel like I'm an outsider looking in, but looking in they are. And now the question is, what are they observing? But what we've got to bear in mind is that there are distinctives, there are boundaries that God creates of the in and the out of life. And here now, what you and I have got to begin to do is to examine ourselves, and the purpose of it all is to see whether you, whether I, are in the faith. He doesn't end there. Now, wise teacher that the Apostle Paul is, then he he changes his terminology somewhat to still try to seize, to hold, to grip our attention. So he moves from the word examine to the word test. But once again, he's utilizing the word yourselves, and he keeps it in the plural. Everybody's involved in in this effort, you see, proactively. Whether you want to call it examining yourself or testing yourself, there's some kind of spiritual scrutiny that you and I have got to pose. Again, not testing each other based upon our own expectations that they are either living up to or not living up to, but rather testing ourselves. And what's the standard of that test? Well, the answer is the scriptures, the Bible. Matahan. Life is hard, he wrote. On the person who's too easy on himself or herself. And that's a fact that prompted officials of a state employment office in Tucson, Arizona, to post an interesting sign over a full length mirror. And it was directed to all job hunters. It reads, quote, Would you hire this person? In another office, a mirror and sign join forces to pose this question, are you ready for a job? These state officials wanted people to take a good look at themselves before seeking employment. And what the Apostle Paul wants you and me to do now is to look at ourselves, get personal. So you examine yourself, you test yourself, but there's a purpose, and it's not to create some kind of spiritual autopsy. It's to make certain that you, that I, that we are in the faith, not outsiders looking in, but uh, we're on the inside. And then he adds this caveat. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, 
that Jesus Christ is in you? Question mark. Now there's a brilliance to the way in which the Apostle Paul uses the little word I-N, isn't there? If you track throughout the writings, particularly in Ephesians, but really through various epistles, what you will find is that he will talk about us being in Christ, but on the other hand, he'll talk about Christ being in us. There's a richness to this unique spiritual dynamic that God wants us to be able to understand in relationship to him based upon this exam, based upon this test. Do you not realize this about yourselves, the Apostle Paul asks, that Jesus Christ is in you? You take a deep breath, and then you think about the pass-fail system, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Exclamation point at this point. So now, I'm administering the test, but God is the one who has written the test, God knows the answers to the questions. God has set the standard, and God doesn't grade on a curve. I hope you will find out that we, here's his humility at this point, that we have not failed the test because, you see, there have been false apostles that have made their way into Corinth that are, in essence, been saying, the apostle Paul has failed to meet the test, therefore you shouldn't be listening to him. But now the Apostle Paul is turning it on them because they too are going to have to ask themselves this question, is Christ in me? Well, he moves from verse 5 and these exclamation points and these questions and the dual exam, test, tied together with the in the faith, Christ in us. And then there's a richness here in verse 6. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. There's a self-evaluation that God wants us to continuously produce. So before you're prone to evaluate your spouse, the one you're going to marry, classmates, co-workers, people in the church, before you start evaluating them based upon your own sense of expectations, your own sense of standards, get personal. Stay humble. Look at self. When Harry Truman was thrust into the presidency by the death of FDR, a friend took him aside and said, Harry, from here on out, you're going to have lots of people around you and they'll try to put up a wall around you, cut you off from any ideas but theirs. And Harry, they're going to tell you what a great man you are. But Harry, you and I both know you ain't. It gives you pause. It gives you a reason to stop and think gives you a reason to ask yourself the tough questions. Am I an outsider looking in, or am I part of the insiders looking out? And then we drop to our knees, where someone would say to a Mr. Briscoe, your teaching's new to us. I want to make sure that we are, we're in the faith. 
And so now we explore that together, and it gives us a new perspective because no longer then are we caught up with ourselves. We are now thinking big picture of the way in which we are to live our lives before God. And so he takes us now to the second means. You've got your arms around verses 5 and 6. And now he takes us to this whole matter of your prayer life. Because second of all, we provide evidence of our faith, not only through the testing we administer in 5 and 6, but also through the prayers that we offer in 7 through 10. And these prayers are very indicative of the way in which we relate to God and the way in which we relate to each other. Because look carefully what the Apostle Paul is now saying here. But we pray, we pray to God. We pray to God that you may not do wrong. Now the Apostle Paul at this point has been continuously challenged by people who have made their way into Corinth that have been calling into question his authority while magnifying their own sense of authority. And he says, we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. Though, And he says, with a smile on his face, that we may seem to have failed, as if it appears in the eyes of some that, that they failed. But the Apostle Paul here at this point is incredibly interested in praying for others. And so now, when you and I begin to pray to God, we've got to ask ourselves some tough questions. And among the tough questions we're asking, not only is what am I praying for, but for whom am I praying and here then is Jesus on that cross. And Jesus being crucified, he prayed repeatedly because the Greek is in what's known as the imperfect tense, indicating it's something ongoing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now this is incredible because here is intercession at its highest order. And here now the Apostle Paul has found a model by which he can pray even for those who are opposed to him. John Knox will have understood that for those that have traveled to Scotland and some have in this congregation in recent months. While very ill, his biographer says, John Knox, the founder of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, called to his wife and said, read me that scripture where I first cast my anchor. And then his wife read to him the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. And seemed as though Knox lost his sense of weakness. He began to pray. He began to pray for his countrymen. He began to pray for those who did not yet accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. He prayed for people who had opposed him. And as he prayed, we are told that his spirit went home to be with the Lord. Can you imagine that being your final moment before entering into God's presence? The inhale and the exhale of prayer as you are moving into the presence of the sovereign God of the universe. The man of whom Queen Mary had said, quote, I fear his prayers more than I do the armies of his enemies. 
He ministered through prayer until the moment of his death. And so now the oxygen of prayer is right there in the midst of verse 7. And here is one of the means by which we give evidence of being in the faith. By how we pray, not only for those who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, not only for ourselves, but also for those who seem to be incredibly opposed to us, who are so difficult for us to be able to relate to at work, in our family relationships. This is the sort of people that the Apostle Paul is praying for. People that looked at Paul and say, they don't meet our tests. He doesn't meet our test. doesn't meet our standards of what a Christian's all about. So notice his wording. You can almost see the half smile on his face. But that you may do what's right, even though we may seem to have failed. But now I want you to take the in the faith. And note the absoluteness of that word, the faith. And tie it together now with the truth of verse 8. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And the truth is the sum total of what God has revealed in his word. And so he pulls this together and says, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. And if you are in the medical community this morning, that's a fascinating word. Because the word restoration comes from a root word which carries with the idea to mend a broken bone, to set it back into place. Something orthopedic. Something which has been dislocated is put back into place. Now the Apostle Paul is looking out over this Corinthian congregation. There might be certain people in mind who have looked at the Apostle Paul and said, he doesn't meet our standards. And maybe there are certain people in your life who you feel as though they look at you and say, I just, no matter what I do, I'm not going to be able to meet their standards. Maybe it's something in your past. Maybe it's just something about you. You just can't live up to their standards. But then, who made them God? Don't make them God. Let God be God. God is gracious, even when God's people sometimes are not. Let God be God. Meanwhile, what you and I have got to be concerned with at this point is that we've got to take the broken bones of Christian relationships. Those that seem to be so incredibly relationally dislocated fit things back together. Are you doing that in your life groups? Doing that through the youth group? Doing that informally? Doing that relationally? It's your restoration is what we pray for. This is why Jesus was able to say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now here's a sign of how the spiritually mature person prays where you keep on praying for your critic. Pray that they'll do good. Pray that they'll be strong. Even when you feel sometimes so incredibly weak, 
Peter Miller understood that. American Revolutionary War, lived in a town in Pennsylvania, enjoyed a rich fellowship with, at that time, General George Washington. But also in that town, there was this man, Michael Whitman, who did everything in his power to oppose this individual, Peter Miller, who happened to be a pastor. But one day, Whitman was involved in treason, arrested, sentenced to death, and Miller started on foot, and the biographer tells us, walked incredible numbers of miles to Philadelphia to plead for this man's life. Washington admitted him in his presence, and once Miller began to ask for release, no, Peter, Washington said, I can't grant you the, the life of your friend. Startled, my friend, exclaimed Peter Miller, he's the worst enemy I have. What? shouted Washington which was not his normal way of responding. You've walked all these miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts the matter in a different light. I'll grant the pardon. And he did. Stephen Olford tells us that Peter Miller took Michael Whitman from the very shadow of death, brought him back to his hometown, ministered to him not only... not no longer as an enemy, but as a friend, and led him to saving faith you see in Jesus Christ. Got a Whitman in your life? Who just seems so adversarial, so confrontational, so oppositional. Have you ever pondered the fact that this might very well be an outsider looking in and wondering what does it take to be an insider looking out? And could it be that it's your reactions and your responses to his or her antagonism that's part of the tool mix that God's given you to reach that adversarial person with the saving faith of Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior embedded in that person's soul? Jesus Christ had to do that constantly, you know, with the people who were resisting him. For we are glad when we are weak, you're strong. Your restoration is what we pray for, orthopedic medical term, setting something in place that has been dislocated, you see. Is there a dislocation in your relational network? You're up to verse 10. He's got a purpose statement here. He wants people to know why he's writing about these matters. You know, he's reaching the end of his letter to the Corinthians, and you and I both know that last words carry high significance. They have lasting impact in the thoughts, the minds of people. We've lost a number of people this year who've gone home to be with the Lord. We've stood at and sat at the bedside of various individuals. We've heard some of the last sentences uttered. They're memorable. Well, now here's some of the last sentences for the Corinthians that Paul is going to utter. And he's going to give them a purpose statement here now in verse 10. Here's a reason why I've written this. When I come, I may not have to be severe, 
in my use of the authority. And you say, Gary, what's that all about? Well, again, you've got to remember, as we've been studying 2 Corinthians, that the fundamental aim of his opponents was to call into question whether or not he was an apostle, to call into question his authority, so instead they'd be able to magnify their own and give themselves a standing in Corinth. But now notice the end, because this is transferable to the way in which you and I live our lives relationally that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for tearing down. To put it succinctly and perhaps somewhat memorably, asking ourselves the question, is my life such that my purposefulness is constructive or is it destructive in what I say and how I live? When we begin to think this way, then we're beginning to think the way in which a Peter Miller would have to be able to approach a Washington. And so now he's looking for a constructive way of taking those who are on the outside and are looking in and are pondering the way he responds to them as an insider looking out. And now you and I have to do something similar here. And so we provide evidence. We provide evidence of our faith. We provide evidence of our faith as you and I began in verses 5 and again in verse 6 with the testing that we administer to ourselves, not to others. And second of all, the prayers that we offer to God. And notice you start it with the, what I will call the inward directive. And you moved, second of all, to the upward directive. But now thirdly, you're going to move towards the outward directive. Because thirdly, we provide evidence of our faith through the relationships that we develop. Verses 11 through 14. Now I'm going to pause at this point and ask a question. I think it's critical because the Apostle Paul wants the Corinthians to grapple with this question. What's the quality of your relationships? Look at those you're in an adversarial relationship with and ask what can be done. How can I respond constructively rather than destructively? And for those that I am in close relationship with, how can we become full-spectrum disciple-makers where I can empower those to lead others to Christ, who lead others to Christ, to lead others to Christ, so that those that are on the outside looking in and are longing to be able to have what you have find that peace that surpasses all understanding, the peace that guards your heart, your mind in Christ Jesus, so they can be a part of the inside looking out, reevaluating this world in light of what Christ has done for them. Now you're on to this third the quality of your relationships. And I almost get the impression at this point that the Apostle Paul, if he lived in 2018, would have been brilliant with texting. You ever pondered how it seems like texting has replaced the old postcard? You'd say a whole lot and a whole little. And now you communicate effectively, succinctly, in ways in staccato form to arrest the attention of another. What I see here now are five texting points. 
that come out of 11 through 14 that force us to reevaluate the quality of our relationships and ask am I, are you truly developing them in a way that brings glory to God and enrichment, you see, to their lives. Now you look at this very carefully here and notice how it all begins. He says, finally, finally, my brothers. And when I read that, I didn't want to skirt over that because Paul had earlier used the term brothers when he opened each of the first two sections of 2 Corinthians. For example, as you can see in your insert, chapters 1 through 7 deal with how you manage the physical hardships of life. And he did so by addressing them, by saying the collective brothers. In the second area of 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9, he dealt with how do we address the financial hardships of life. And again, he began with the phrasing of brothers. So now you couple chapter 1, verse 8 with chapter 8, verse 1. Easy to remember. But now you're into the third section of 2 Corinthians, how to manage what we'll call the adversarial or the confrontational relationships of life. And now look carefully where it says, but brothers is noticeably absent in the final section until now. It's almost as if what he's saying is, I'm saving the best for last. I'm going to bookend this. He gets highly relational now as he evaluates the quality of his relationships, as should I, as should you. And so he begins with the first of five texts. They're coming at you. I can see his thumb moving. Rejoice. Now Paul longed for the Corinthians to be able to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Paul would then say later to the Philippians in chapter 4 verse 4. That means then that you are infusing Christian fellowship. You are infusing relationships with a sense of joy as you're about to embark upon this constructive rather than destructive approach towards relationship building. Do you do it joyfully or do it cynically? And then the second text comes at you. His thumb is still moving as he moves on to say, aim for restoration. Now draw a line from the word restoration here in verse 11 back to verse 9, which ended with your restoration is what we pray for. Now we had said in verse 9, didn't we, that it was an orthopedic term used to describe a bone that had been dislocated, put back into place, but it's also a fisherman's term. Where they're examining their nets after bringing in their haul, and they find out that some of the netting's been torn. It was used to describe the work of a fisherman who's mending his nets. Now, when you and I are involved in Christian fellowship, use the medical, if that works for you, where there's going to be a sense where there may have to be a, a resetting of that which is dislocated. Or to put it another way, there's going to have to be a remending, a mending of nets that one time functioned so effectively, but now there are tears 
in the relational fabric of life. We've got to find a way to be able to address those. Paul looks at the Corinthians at this point. And he's saying, in essence, if you're going to be able to minister effectively, you're going to have to find a way then to mend the nets of life. In his biography of William Wilberforce, Garth Lean tells of how Wilberforce was part of what was known in Great Britain as the Clapham Group, a group of believers who had come together to make a difference politically and culturally in Great Britain in the time period in which Wilberforce lived. And one of their objectives, of course, was to overthrow this whole sense of the slave trade movement. Lean writes, this group of fellow believers, these wise individuals, never endeavored to mold our unformed opinions to any particular mode. Now, it was their lives that spoke and the way in which they related to one another. We saw their patience toward one another, their wisdom with one another, their proactive activity before us on a daily basis. And we knew and we felt that all this was only a natural expression of the fact that they lived in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And I captured the word in. Finally, brothers, he's texting you. Rejoice, first text. Aim for restoration. Second text, whether the medical term or the fisherman's term. But now you're up to the third text, comfort one another. And you look up and you smile as you see what's on the screen when you see that word comfort, because isn't that the way, in fact, 2 Corinthians even began this entire series, early in 2018, we began with chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all what? Comfort. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so now what we do, wanting to be a healthy congregation with multiple services, is that we find a way then, we take the texting, we get to the third point, and we see how Paul, once again, is bookended. He began something, he ends something. He's pulling it all together for us, and he wants us to understand that in the depth and the breadth of Christian fellowship, there are going to be the afflicted ones, and there's going to be the conflicted ones. And we're going to have to address the dislocated. We're going to have to mend the net. We're going to have to bring a sense of comfort, both to those who are in the right and those who are in the wrong. And he himself needed to comfort the Corinthians in the midst of the fray. And he does it because comfort, you see, is the currency of unity. And if you have unity in your extended family, there's comfort being given by your family. And what we had shared early on in this series is that the word comfort comes from a Latin word. It has to do with a transportable fort where it's being moved from one setting to another on the battlefield 
offering security to those who are battle-weary. What you and I do then is we create this sense of a fortress on the battlefield of life to those who are battle-weary, bring a sense of comfort because you see the word fort in the midst of comfort. You come alongside with this fort, and you have now once again embraced a third of his text, but his thumb is still moving at this point, you see, because he's on to the next one, and he says, agree with one another. Agree with one another. He wants unity in the apostolic truth that he's been teaching throughout the scriptures. The last, live in peace, flows out of such agreement, self-explanatory. Living in peace is proactive. But what these five texts have in common is that they're imperatives, they're commands, and they are rooted together with the richness of a promise, and the God of love and peace will, not might, will be with you as you stare at your phone and you ponder the various texts that have come your way. He wants unity. George Truitt tells the story in an art gallery where an older, older man was seen gazing at a picture of Christ on the cross. And almost unknowingly, his lips parted to utter these words, I love him. And a stranger standing nearby heard the man's words and he stepped over and said, I love him too. And then a third, and then a fourth, and others. Strangers, he writes. Strangers who found themselves coming together around Jesus. Together. Did you notice the one another's here? Rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. The promise delivered. The God of love and peace will be with you. And then he had something that was understandable to the Mediterranean culture. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I saw that weeks ago in Jerusalem as I was walking the Via Della Rosa pondering that, also saw it in Greece. Well, the kiss in the Anchor Bible Dictionary, William Claussen, talking about the holy kiss, writes, there is general agreement that the holy kiss had its origin in the practice which emerged in the early church among believers themselves, with the impetus probably coming from the shape of their life with Jesus himself. Nothing analogous to it is found among any Greek or Roman societies, nor indeed at Qumran. And now he ponders the unholy kiss of a Judas with the kiss that's called holy here. The holy kiss is to be seen in a living context of people who are building a new society that is constructive rather than destructive, a public declaration of the affirmation that I am in the Lord. And that gripped me as I pondered what was here and pondered Judas 
on the outside looking in, even though he looked like he was an insider looking out. And the kiss was anything but holy. He gets global on you. You Corinthians, you think you're the sum total of Christianity? Think again. All the saints greet you. Even those outside of Corinth. It's a global statement. And then he ends with this incredible, incredible Trinitarian benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity. Love of God, first member of the Trinity. Fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And I read that, and I said, Highlander, what grips my attention at this point is that typically benedictions deal with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in that order. But he, for whatever reason, the Apostle Paul has started with the second member of the Trinity rather than the first member of the Trinity. Why? Because these, seem, these people seem to lack grace toward one another. Grace, unmerited favor. So he pulls together the richness of the Godhead and says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, the love of God. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while, while we were sinners, you see, Christ died for us. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4.10. And then thirdly, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And now he ends Trinitarian. And he pulls together his texting, and you can almost see him setting down his, his phone at this point. As he smiles and he looks at you and me. And he says, this Trinitarian ministry... This sovereign God be with y'all. He's southern, you know, y'all. And he pulls it all together. And you begin to think seriously about how all of this began and how all this ended. It began with a sense of needing to be comforted. It ends with a sense of now is our responsibility to be comforting others. But it ties itself together by asking ourselves the question, but I'm, am I in the faith? As his interpreter urged him to keep teaching, and he did. And Mr. Briscoe, unable to see his notes or read his Bible, and he continued. And after he had spoken in the dock for about 20 minutes, suddenly the lights began to blink, and what he saw startled him. Everyone was on their knees. And they remained there for the rest of his exposition. And the next day, Mr. Briscoe commented on this to one man. And the man said, after you left, sir, we stayed on our knees most of the night. Your teaching was new to us. We wanted to make sure we are in the faith. Examine yourselves. to see whether you are in the faith. Thank you for studying 2 Corinthians with me.
in 2018. Let's stand together. And so, Father, I pray now, if there's anybody who, like my friend, positioned himself to watch what was going on, but if Ash would say, I feel like I'm an outsider looking in. I'm asking now that that person would continuously examine himself, herself, test himself, herself. Forget examining others. Forget testing others to see whether or not they live up to our expectations. Deal with the dynamic of a relationship with you and make absolutely certain that we have put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation. We want to be in you and in you for your glory. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.